This is Michael Shapiro on Interplay Conversations and Music. I'm so pleased to have someone I consider an old friend, although this is only our second meeting face-to-face, Andrew Litton. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for asking me, Michael. It's a pleasure to have something to do during these days of the pandemic. Well, I'm catching you before you hit the road. Yes. Before we got on, I was talking to to Andrew about the many things we've kind of had in common, kind of, the kind of nexus we've had. Andrew's very early job was as conductor of the Chappaqua Orchestra, which I, about two or three conductors after, conducted for 16 years. Wow. You weren't there as long. I know that. No, no, no. A couple of years, but oh, well, I don't remember exactly. Probably closer to four years, but it was fantastic to have, you know, be a student at Juilliard and then have have an orchestra where you could go try things out for real, you know, without a teacher looking over your shoulder. Um, and uh, it was fun. And I, of course, got to know Westchester quite well then. So it's it seems only natural that I'm living here now in Westchester. It's, oh, it's a beautiful great. part of the of the area. Well, it, it went through many iterations, which we don't need to go into, uh, but um, your period was very famous for one thing that the old timers would talk about was your playing piano with the orchestra, which you've done many times, haven't you? Yeah, well, it's the, the very first time was actually uh, at Juilliard when I was in my second year, I guess. Uh, yeah, that, that would be about right. And... Uh, I, I got invited to play Rhapsody in Blue in Moscow with Yevgeny Svetlanov conducting. And wow. I had never played it with orchestra. I'd played it uh, piano solo version since I was 15, 16. So I got, and then this was the great thing about having parents that lived five blocks away and a mother who loved people and was a really great cook. So I could get my friends to do anything gratis by just inviting them for dinner. <laughs> you know, they were, <laughs> students. they were students, they were hungry and nothing like a great home cooked meal. So I literally pulled together a 26 piece band to do the original Ferdy Grofet right. jazz band orchestration of the piece. Um, and the fee was dinner afterwards, party afterwards at, at my parents. So it was it was a really fun experience. And that was actually the very first time I tried playing and conducting. Um, I, one of my idols, of course, as a, as a young musician, young American wannabe conductor growing up was Leonard Bernstein. And of course he played and conducted all the time. So I felt like, gee, when I grow up, I want to do that too. And Rhapsody in Blue, of course, is probably the best piece to start out with because so much of it is piano alone, orchestra alone, piano alone, orchestra alone. Right. And when they play together, the piano is very much a concertante part. So you're not important, you know. So so it really it worked out amazingly well. And of course, I loved the dual challenge and and so I've been doing it ever since with a very small repertoire, to be fair. They're not, in my humble opinion, that many pieces that don't need a conductor. Now, of course, a conductor would say that, but um I think once we got to late Beethoven and the romantic beginning of the romantic period, orchestras and soloists musically became much more adversarial. So you need yep. a sort of ringleader for the mm -hmm. orchestra. So That's when right. it's time for the orchestra to make an exclamation, it doesn't go, as they're sort of guessing where to play, but 
bam, you know, <laughs> perfect example is Emperor Concerto, you know, I know. you know, it's you need to have that tug of war uh, between two people, basically. But Andrew, Andrew you mentioned Emperor, which is which I've conducted and I know the famous runs there and to come in at the right spot isn't so easy if the pianist is not articulating. Is that right? No, that, you know, that's absolutely true. There, Well, there's several Beethoven concertos that have that issue. Beethoven uh, 3, too. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a challenge. I mean, it's a little bit of close your eyes and pray, but but a lot of the great pianists actually have a system. Um, so there's there's actually underneath a, a kind of beat, whether it's five counts, four Correct. counts. Correct, correct. Um, and that's great. But some of the younger pianists that you work with, they haven't thought this through. And no, they haven't. So you're like, okay. Uh, okay. So, but it's that—that that is a challenge. But, but anyway, getting back to play conducting. Yep. Um, so my repertoire is the two big Gershwin pieces, the Concerto, and the Rhapsody in Blue. I don't do the second Rhapsody. Um, I I do um, the uh, Shostakovich second piano concerto, which is in one tempo for each of the three movements. So again, conducting not necessary, um, and at least as far as being a traffic cop. Ravel G major, which works incredibly well because it's a chamber work anyway. The, the string count is actually listed by the composer. And it's a very That's small correct. section. And the second movement is this gorgeous, the second half of the second movement is this gorgeous duet between the English horn and the piano. And as a conductor, and I've conducted it alone many times, I mean, you know, just, just conducted it many times. And you really feel like you're at the third wheel, you know, it's like, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's so much of this dialogue between the soloist and the English horn player. So, um, so that I feel that piece works phenomenally well when you're facing into the orchestra and just communicating as a chamber piece. And in fact, the most recent, uh, I, I played it most recently in March in Singapore, exactly 365 days from the last time I conducted a note of music. So wow. I, March 5th, 2020, I was in Singapore, gave the final cutoff and, uh, well, it was the ending of Shostakovich 10. And I never imagined that it would be exactly 365 days later before I'd work again. And such, well, that, that's what COVID's been like. So Yes, you know, I know full well. And therefore, Interplay came into birth because I had the time to talk to you all. Absolutely. Now, you know, you mentioned the Ravel Piano Concerto. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote it on Erard Piano which is still in his house at uh have you been there to the house yes yes so you played the piano well i i was shy i was little i was very young i was with my parents ah so, i went there uh, fairly recently i was a bit uh, shy so so i was able to play uh, i was able to play tumbo de couperin a little bit on the piano nice. it was uh, it was amazing just a little a little touch there the the woman who was the docent there madame moreau gave me the book to look at that he took the chanson bilitis out of the actual book it's still on the shelf that's, you can't you can't make this stuff up i know that's incredible now let, let's talk you talk about piano you're you are a wonderful pianist because i've heard you play you're an extraordinary pianist and you studied piano with juilliard didn't you that's right um i studied my my final teacher juilliard was nadia reisenberg um, i know bob sherman's uh, mom 
Bob Sherman's mom, Steve Sherman's grandma. Um, right. But uh, but before that, I was studying privately from the age of 11 with Erwin Freundlich, who was chairman oh. of the piano faculty. Yeah. And um, my he died um, two days before my entrance audition to, to Juilliard. Oh, man. So I, I contacted Nadja and I said, can I put you down as my teacher? My teacher's dead, you know. I But I'd studied with him from age 11 to, to 18. And so he was a huge influence, both so as- you remain a great pianist and a wonderful chamber music player and a, a pianist who can play with orchestra. Now, many pian some pianists have become conductors or cellists have become conductors or even timpanists have become conductors. But what was the impetus for you? What moved you into that to find the stick? When did that happen? Well, I, I think, again, before we went on air, you talked about how you're a composer who conducts and I'm definitely a conductor who plays piano and the reason right. for this is that I started piano just before I turned six at 10 years old I started going to the Leonard Bernstein young people's concerts again uh -huh. a very short walk from where my parents lived and it would make a much better story Michael if I told you that it was the first concert that was the epiphany it wasn't it was the fourth or fifth one and he did Pines of Rome which uh -huh. the program is still available on you know on video uh, it's called Anatomy of an Orchestra. And I just was fascinated by this piece of music, how amazingly well he articulated about it and explained all these, these four vistas in Rome. And of course, the ending with the extra brass and it gets louder and louder and he's jumping higher and higher. <laughs> and I just came out of Ben filling my call and said to my mother, who of course paid these little, I went with my best friend, you know, these two little 10 year olds, um, mom, I want to be a conductor. And she just sort of rolled her eyes. And I, I, I'll never forget that. And it wasn't that she was being disrespectful, but as recently as that morning, I aff affirmed that I wanted to be a fireman. So she wasn't taking it terribly seriously. <laughs> and not just any fireman, the fireman on the back of the hook and ladder. Now, we're of the same vintage. We remember those great old fire trucks in New York City with the one guy all alone in the back, way up high. Again, people looking up to you, but it was a very different kind of control. And, uh, but I was very serious about it. And fortunately, very, the closest fam family friend was Richard Horowitz, the timpanist of the Met, who actually uh, retired after 66 years in 2012, being the longest serving principal player in any orchestra ever. But um, Phenomenal. he, he started taking me whenever homework and piano practice allowed to sit next to him in the pit at the Met. So oh, lucky you. when you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you don't know operas, of course, it's, it's all new. And of course, um, what they were doing mostly in those days were, were the great Italian operas. They did, they did all the time, night after night. And in Italian opera, there's always subito fortissimo loud timpani rolls when somebody's been betrayed or somebody's been found out for doing yeah. something. Yeah. And of course, I didn't know when those would come. And I'd sit right sandwiched between the wall of the pit and his biggest drum, the 30 inch drum. So I literally was on top of the tippity, if you will. And he would go Psst, and I'd grab my ears. So, you know, and he'd come blasting in and then he'd go <laughs> all clear, you know. <laughs> but but the, you've touched on something very important. That, that's why I love these kind of shop conversations. 
you must have seen some of like Molinari Pradelli or Cleva and some of those guys conduct, correct? Many times, many times, yeah. Nello, San Nello Santi, perhaps? Nello Santi and Patene. Uh, these were the guys, of course, who sickeningly conducted all these Italian operas by memory, you know, I mean. Just... I know. And, I know and... I know I know Nello Santi because I was at the Zurich Opera when he was there. Wow. And when he was in his 40s, I mean, I'm so old, it's ridiculous. But in any event, what I find amazing is that yes, they knew it by heart. They knew every word by heart. They knew every stage direction by heart. But the thing that really amazes me, and for you as a conductor must have been amazing, was especially in things like Puccini, Poco Ritardando, Accelerando, Poco Accelerando, A Tempo, New Tempo, New yeah. Key, all that flexibility. Right. And and natural. Speak to natural. that. You Speak know, to it, that. it was, it was uh, extraordinary. I mean, my first recording, to just show you, was um, the the first Tosca with Callas Di Stefano and Gobi, and yeah, that's, that's conducted. One. Yeah, that's conducted by uh, Vittorio De Sabata, right? And it is an extraordinary lesson, conducting lesson. Just listening to it. And again, I had it on LP. I practically wore it out, and then, of course, in subsequent years, got it on CD. Um, it is exactly what you're talking about, the give and take, the elasticity, but all what's in the music. It's not, then they're not superimposing. And what's fantastic too, the Rome Orchestra of that day, and we're talking early 60s, they had this wonderful ability to slide between notes through these port portamenti Fabulous. that are yeah. kind of lost. I mean, that's been my whole sort of back a lot background to my conducting careers i've put these back wherever i've been sometimes to the detriment of the music but most of the time i think it really works and i feel if we're talking about authentic instrument practice this is how things were done you know when correct was alive this is how they played and yeah. so um so it was it was really a, an eye-opening experience as i got to older and realized just how great this very first recording i ever owned was <laughs> Andrew, let's Andrew Litton, let's talk about what you just talked about. The practice of portamenti, the sliding, the kind of gentle sliding or delayed sliding. When I worked with Starker as a as an accompanist, I remember him talking about delayed slides and he'd show people. They said, What is he talking about? And they, you know, this is portamento, this is a delay, so this is a fuller slide, you know, all that stuff. Don't you find it's very hard today to work with some orchestras, not all. To, to to learn them how to do that? Don't you, a guest conductor can't do that, right? Well, we try, I try. And I mean, not only do I now, because I've been doing this for so long, have very often my own parts for the orchestras wherever I go. So right. all the slides I want are already written. But when when I ask for a slide, um, there, are, there are different styles of slide. And exactly. so you need to know what your, what you want, because as soon as you say it correctly, they'll do it tastefully. But if you just say, could you slide between these two notes and it's not a terribly good orchestra, you're going to get a, it's going to be a comedy routine. You know, it's going to sound terrible. So, so it, it has to be, this, this, this is the key thing, like right. any effect, like stopped horns, like any effect in music, this is an effect. It's not the musical result. The musical result comes from if the effect works or not. Um, and so it's really important that it doesn't become a means to an end, but right. actually just a nice way to get to the end. It needs to be organic. Yeah. I mentioned to you another experience I had. I went to Scala with my daughter to see, to, to see Bohem in the Zeffirelli production. And the 
first thing I noticed about the orchestra was how natural they were in that repertoire. Yeah. And the ability to do the kinds of things you're talking about very easily and tastefully. The conductor was fabulous, too. Uh, uh, again, I, I, I was astonished by how flexible it was. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a national inclination? You've conducted Singapore, England, Europe, America, South, South part of America, North part of America. Can you speak to that? If, they're, if you're going to do Puccini in uh, England, let's say, is there a different attitude? No. I found. I mean, well, I, wait. I find. I, I, yeah, yeah. No, Go ahead. No, 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 no. Just for example, Delius conducting Delius in, in the states, very different than conducting in England, for example. Yeah, well, actually, a better example than Puccini is is Elgar. Uh, since yes. you talked about the Brits, and I do, you know, my career started in the UK, so of course I have a lot of experience working with the British orchestras. And what was so great is very early on, I got to do a lot of these British pieces like Elgar and Britain, Benjamin Britten and Delius and Walton. And so they kind of taught me because if you actually just take in what they're giving you naturally, and this goes back to what your original question was, you learn, you go, aha, I get it. So this is what needs to be done. Then you go play, for example, Elgar, which I think is even more difficult than Delius to export because the music is so personal. It's so uniquely English. Yeah. Um, and and I love it for that. I mean, I love that it's just so clearly, just like Gershwin is so clearly New York. You know, I mean, there's no other, <laughs> you know. So with Elgar, the danger is, because it's very romantic music, as we all know, to overdo it. And if, if you overdo it, if you let the Rabati get too far, um, it becomes like bad Richard Strauss. It really does. It doesn't mm. stand up to that sort of treatment. Um, Elgar is much more about heartache than heart on sleeve, I'm dying, she's dying. You know, it's not like that at all. It's it's much more subtle. It's the little suspensions. It's it's and, and he really notates his music very carefully. Like he does. There'll be one bar of Largamente and that's it. You're done. Don't make it two bars. It's one bar. Beautiful. And so, you know, so that's been the challenge uh, I found. And what you said about the La Scala Orchestra playing Italian music. Yes, there is a certain amount of ownership that orchestras have, but the funny of their own culture. But the funniest example of what we're talking about here was in Bergen where I was for 12 and a half joyous years. Great place. And, and I'm doing, we're actually recording the Grieg Piano Concerto for their umpteenth time. It's, it's my first time and it's with Stephen Huff. And I get off the podium at one point and say to the concertmaster who was Norwegian, um, Espen, what's the Norwegian tradition in this passage? Because I'm trying very hard to get mm -hmm. to get it together and it's not happening. You know, it's sort of, sort of one of those typical things that also can happen with national music of one's own in one's own country is that things get kind of, yeah, we don't need to rehearse that. We know that. And so obviously for recording, I wanted to clean up this one passage. He says, what's I said to Espen, what's the Norwegian tradition here? He said, you're the Norwegian tradition. <laughs> I said, me? You're the well, conductor. You're the yeah, tradition. Yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. like, okay, well. That's I have to say, I have to say, I heard it also in Bergen, that concerto at the at a festival a few years ago. And it, it was very different from what I was expecting. A, a little story, very quickly. I was in Siena, which we're going to talk about in a second, at the Kiji Academy years ago when I was a kid. 
And I met a Norwegian girl who had been in the uh, Fiddler on the Roof productions in Norwegian. <laughs> so I, she was gorgeous, and I really wanted to have her as a date, as, a, as, a, as it were. <laughs> and I started to sing to her, Edvard Grieg, I love you, but in German, Ich liebe dich, which you know. So she stopped me cold. She says, uh 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 uh. And she started to sing it to me in the Norwegian, with the Norwegian language. I can't do it now. I don't remember the words. And I went, oh my God, is that gorgeous? Yeah. The national style. Exactly. So maybe the concertmaster was being nice to you. I think, think he was, but it was just so funny because because you, as as you know, we conductors spend so much time worrying about just that that you want your French music to not have a foreign accent, you want your German music to not have a foreign accent, you want your American music to not have a foreign accent, but to just sound innate, like we play this every day. And one of the great moments in my very early career was when I was principal conductor of the Bournemouth Symphony, which is yeah. my first symphony orchestra post um by the third year of my tenure we got a review in a london paper that said the bournemouth symphony is the best american orchestra on this side of the pond is <laughs> 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 that oh, wow. when we played copeland and bernstein it didn't sound like Julius Elgar, you know so that was really fun and of course you know i'm way over reading into it but it still was a nice compliment to get You've been it's at wonderful orchestras. You're now with Singapore, and uh, you conduct as music director of New York City Ballet, to our delight, because we're big New York City ballet goers. Um, conducting ballet versus, and I know you started out as a rehearsal pianist for the City Ballet years when you were in Juilliard, weren't you? Actually, actually, no, I, I wasn't involved with City Ballet. What happened is, ah. uh, I in my first year at Juilliard, uh, February. My mm-hmm. good friend Bill Wolfram calls and says, Andy, you got to help me out. I said, what's up? He said, I have been invited to play piano solo on stage for Rudolf Nureyev and some other stuff. Um, was that a- ABT at the time? It was Nureyev and Friends. It was a unique. Ah, Lander yes. presented it. It was at the then called Minskoff Theater. I don't know what the name's been changed to now. And it literally was a week of work where the first piece was piano solo on stage with Nureyev and me, and that was it. Second piece was Trout Quintet with the Murray Lewis Dance Company, and it was his, he was the invited company. And then a Cole Porter arrangement for 10-piece band by a then relatively unknown William Balcom. And it was, it was great. And that was, uh, I want to say April 1978, April, May. I can't remember exactly which month. And um, it was amazing. So it launched this sudden that was actually my first professional engagement i was a first year student at juilliard Fabulous. and and so they invited me niederlander the production company invited me to do a bunch of other work including going out to the hollywood bowl i mean i'm sorry the greek theater in la uh with other new york musicians to do piero lunaire and oh, with the danish ballet and then um the most uh, i guess powerful experience was playing uh, for Natalia Makarova, who started her own dance company in 1980. And there was a six ballet season at the Gershwin Theater. It was then called the Eurus Theater. That name change I got. Yeah. And 
uh, three out of the six ballets were me. So I really was busy. I mean, including Gaspard de Lanoui and a whole Chopin set with Cynthia Gregory. So these were ABT artists, but there wasn't anything, didn't have anything to do with ABT. Um, Let's talk about conducting ballet for those people who are watching, especially young conductors. I know that when I conducted Nutcracker for the first time, I hadn't worked enough times with the, with the dancers to get the right tempo for Snowflake. And it became a blizzard. I did it way too quick. <laughs> so let's talk about what groundwork you do. Let's say it's a new ballet you've never done before. Okay. Well, this is a great How do you prepare? This is a great question because what I wanted to say is after 1980, my conducting career started in, in 1980 and I never did ballet again. I never did ballet as a conductor until 2014 right. when I got invited to uh, guest conduct Capella at New York City Ballet. And um, and then after that, they, they invited me. I started in 2015, the end of 2015 as, as music director. The very first thing I did was uh, because back in 1980, and I should, this is a little bit of a, a shaggy dog story, but uh, forgive me. One of the dancers in the McCarva company uh, was, had just gotten into New York City Ballet. And I really, like you were just telling your story, fancied her. I mean, it was, of I was course. Like, you know, and so I went to performances of hers almost every night. You know, my my fantasy, my my um, what, what shall I say? I my Met experience had been fulfilled by then. I'd been going to the Met for ten years. <laughs> It was ballet time, so uh -huh. I got to know so many of these Balanchine and Robbins that are now a core repertoire for the company ballets early on, even when they were relatively new. Um, and uh, I just loved it. But, and in fact, I learned Ravel G major piano concerto because I saw Jerome Robbins's ballet. Mm -hmm. I was the type of pianist who was playing Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff and Brahms. I didn't want to, you know, Ravel, come on. I saw the ballet and especially that in gorgeous part of the second within like, I got to play this, I got to play this. Right. So ballet actually influenced me musically, which is totally cart before the horse or whatever. But what happened is when I got the Capella opportunity, And I've done a lot of opera, but obviously ballet is very different, especially if you don't know dancing. Right. When you're a musician, we follow sound. We respond to sound. We don't respond to sight. I mean, if an opera singer is in trouble, it's vocally. It's not because, well, right. they tripped. I mean, yeah, that could happen too. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very different experience. So I just, I made them give me three videos, one of which archival videos, one of which was when Balanchine was still alive, because mm -hmm. I knew already going into this that there was going to be controversy about tempo, because that's just that's famous about ballet. Big time. Big time. Big time. So I wanted to make sure I could say to the ballet master, or now they're called repertory directors, um, what when they say it's too fast or it's too slow, I said, this is exactly what Balanchine did in 19, you know, when he was alive in 1981. You want to hear it? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was great. I didn't have to actually ever use this, but it was really fun to have that in my back pocket. But And I noticed, Andrew, I, I have to interrupt you, but I have very little time left. When you get a brand new piece, Justin Peck does a new, new choreography or somebody else does a new choreography. How are you approaching your study then of the tempo well that's very different first of all we have two new i'm doing two new ballets in the season coming up in september Correct. 
I'm still waiting for the score to one of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope they hurry up. And the other one is still kind of being written, although I've seen, you know, mock-ups of what, what it's looking like so far. Um, so the challenge for me is to learn it really quickly and then start going to rehearsals and work things out with the dancers and the repertory director. So Perfect. we really, the, the tempo is actually decided together. And this is what was missing because I didn't get to work with Balanchine or Robbins directly. When you have that kind of dialogue with the creative force, you can actually influence it. And, and you're part of it. You're part of it. And, and Balanchine yeah. was famous for asking Robert Irving when a dancer complained it was too fast, Robert, is that the right tempo? And Robert would say, absolutely. And, and Balanchine would look at them and say, yes, you better speed up. You know. <laughs> so I, I think what's, what's really been interesting too for me is I take two very different approaches to whatever the repertoires were doing. Now in, in City Ballet, most of our repertoire is not story ballet. It's, it's concert pieces that have been choreographed. Correct. And as a concert piece, I kind of know how those go. You know, you've, I've been, been, you've been around a little while. I've been doing this for almost 40 years. So I will challenge the dancers to a point saying this really, you know, you're, I know you're trying to get in all the steps, but it's just too slow. Can't we just try, you know, or maybe the second performance, let me push you here. And usually it works. We have a great relationship. So it's good that we can talk openly like that. But you we know, have it's one, a little bit of one, negotiating. I understand. We have one minute, but I want to go to Siena. You just came back from Alessio Bax and Lucille Chavez's wonderful festival, the Encontri yeah. in Siena. Yeah, talk it's not actually in Siena, though. That's the misleading. That's right. It's, I know. It's, it's in the area around Siena. It's actually much closer to Montepulciano, which was a terrible excuse to drink wine. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. I can just imagine. And there you did a night of concerti, as I as I read. That's correct. And the concert itself was actually in Florence at the Teatro Verdi, which is oh, a beautiful 800. Bravo, bravo, yeah, bravo. It was, it was really fun. It was well, really fun. I, I just, I hope to God you go back. It, it, to me, that is, you know, one of the fundamental places of my background because I went to the Kiji Academy yeah. when Donatoni and Agosti and those guys were there, and that was quite something, and Ferrara. But thank you so much, Andrew Litton, for being with us today on Interplay. It's been a real delight. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Well, bravo. Uh, happier home, and we're all looking forward to seeing you in New York. And if anybody's watching this in Singapore, please catch Andrew Litton conduct the Singapore Symphony. Thanks, Andrew, for being on Interplay. Thanks, Michael. This is Michael Shapiro, your host on Interplay Conversations and in Music. Thank you for joining us.